I am happy. Good. There's a couple of significant reasons why right now I shouldn't be this happy. I shouldn't be incredibly happy because I have a flat tire I have to deal with. Oh. On your bicycle or your car? On my car. That's been parked in a parking lot for a while? Yeah. Somebody hit it a little bit and tore the tire, uh, tore a hole in the sidewall on the tire specifically. So the tire is... slow down. Very flat. Slow down. (laughs) Somebody just casually hit your car? How were you made aware of this? I was made aware of this by uh, when I went to go grocery shopping... (laughs) A few days ago. <laughs> oh, no. After taking the boat over. After taking the boat over in, like, the one time slot in the entire day that I could do this, because there's only two boats on the weekends, uh, it was at this point that I arrived at my car, got in, drove out of the parking spot, and the car started yelling at me about dangerously low tire pressure. Uh, so, got back out of the car and observed, oh, yep. That's a pretty flat tire on the front passenger side. Didn't you take driver's ed? You're supposed to walk around the perimeter of the car inspecting (laughs) it for damage before you get in. Does anybody ever actually do that? Well, now you know why. Now you know why they teach you to do that. Uh, I do only when I'm going on a long, long, long trip. Casey does to make sure none of his wheels fell off. Well, that's true. See, you never know. It could happen. Could happen. Here, I I just sent... I'm pasting three pictures into our private uh, channel, you can see. Um, So the... (laughs) So... You can see the, 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 there's a hole in the sidewall of the tire, and there's a bit of paint scraping around. Mm. Um, so somebody, and, and this, was, this was the front wheel in on the spot. So somebody hit the like inner corner of my car. Oh, this is not delightful. No. Holy smokes. Yeah. So that's, that's not great. And, and because, fortunately, I, I had brought a friend uh, on this particular grocery shopping trip. I, this is the first time I'd ever brought a friend to a grocery shopping trip. So fortunately, I brought a friend and he had a car, so we just took his car instead. <laughs> but this was <laughs> this this is what I have to deal with. So I actually have to go off probably uh, back off the island again, probably on Friday, wait for Tesla roadside service to come with a with the, the loaner tire, with the, the, the wheel of shame, um, and then, you know, deal with it after that. <laughs> What what could possibly hit the sidewall? What pointy thing on another vehicle is is at that level? Maybe like the corner of their plastic bumpery thing? I don't I don't even understand this. My initial theory was maybe it was a higher up bumper from a truck because mm-hmm. at this time of the year most of the people going in and out of this parking lot are contractors and so it's a bunch of trucks and SUVs. Um but the, the that front corner paint scrape on on the the very yeah, low, that's really low that's very that's well below a truck's bumper. Um, so it's, it had to have been another like, you know, low car. Uh, but anyway, honestly, I don't really want to dwell on this, um, because I also have server crap I'm dealing with. Well, before we leave the car thing, does your, does your car have the thing that it's like records a security video of everything that goes on around it all the time? It has that feature. It's called sentry mode. Uh, mm-hmm. But I guess you don't have like an SD card in it or something like no, that. No, no. I, I have the USB thumb drive. And, and it's the, actually the only time I ever bought a thumb drive was for the uh, dash cam feature and the music playing feature on my car. Um, the only reason why it wasn't running is it's off by default and you can put it on. But I've heard that it, it noticeably increases the idle power drain oh, if you your car is that. parked somewhere <laughs> long term. And that's, yeah, that's the opposite of what I need right now because you know, my car sits here for weeks at a time. Um, so that's the last thing I need is to increase power drain. So I had it off. And honestly, I have spent over the last five years cumulatively probably a year and a half parked in this parking lot. And this is the first time anything's ever happened. So it's like my average is still pretty good. Uh, so I'll just, you know, I have to get it fixed and, you know, whatever. But So how does this work with a lease you you would 
either repair it and disclose it upon returning the car or just not repair it and take and take a big ding when you return the car? Like, well, how does that work? They have a certain allowance of and, and the different brands do this differently, but usually it's either like a, a money allowance of like they expect a certain amount of monetary damage to it. And if you go over that, you have to pay for it. Um, or they have certain metrics like a scratch can be, you know, smaller than a quarter and you can have up to five of them or whatever. They'll have, they'll have like metrics like that when you turn it in. And they, they allow you to have a an inspection like a few months before you turn it in so that you can get warned about this and have a chance to go deal with it yourself uh, first. Um, in practice, I have never had a lease charge me significant extra money i think i i think i lost a few hundred dollars on one like that like it was like tiff's car where like a tree branch fell on it and it wasn't bad enough <laughs> oh to get it fixed like it was noticeably dented like it didn't go through the paint but like the, like there was a noticeable dent in, in a panel and i think they charged us a few hundred dollars but that you know it, that was fine it would have caused us more than that to get it fixed um so it was it wasn't a big deal uh, and so and I mean, obviously, my my previous Tesla turn-in had had a lot of issues with it, uh, <laughs> with that whole thing where they forgot to cancel the lease when I turned it in. Oh, um, that's right, I'd forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that I, I don't know how what what their normal process is because I know I didn't go through the normal process. <laughs> so we'll find out because my lease is up in uh, September. But I I think I'm gonna when I bring this to the service department to have them. Um, you know, give me a new tire, <laughs> at least one new tire. I'm going to have them also take a look at this and just say like, Hey, is this, is this within bounds or not? Uh, cause there, it's, it's some pretty substantial paint scraping going on there. So yeah, you have to, you have to redo your fender and your whole front bumper. Yeah. I, I really hope I don't have to do that. <laughs> but, I mean, so or someone does cause you can't lease a car in this condition. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Anyway, um, I have even better news, but first, I have terrible server experiences from this week. I have been fighting server stuff, and most of it has gone well, except when I got to the stupid database issue. And I have to now, like, devise a whole new MySQL backup solution in the meantime until Percona releases extra backup 8.0.23 to match MySQL 8.0.23, which is what all the servers came with that I instantiated, and I don't want to have to roll those back. So, even that, and even my flat tire, are not enough to prevent me from being happy right now because a few days ago I got a wonderful email from Phobio, Apple's trade-in partner, saying your trade has been accepted, here is your gift card. And that gift card was the trade-in value for Tiff's laptop, the last butterfly keyboard in our house. <laughs> it is gone. The butterfly keyboard is gone from our house. It will never come back into our house. And I couldn't be happier. And I'm I'm very glad I was not totally sure they would give us the full value of this keyboard, or of this computer, rather, because the space bar was dead, and <laughs> it was covered in vinyl stickers that we couldn't quite peel all of them off. And so I thought, surely there is a high risk of getting that the dreaded email of, like, we're reducing your value, do you accept or not? Um, nope, they took it. And so the butterfly keyboard is gone we now have a nice credit to spend on, you know, future Apple products for the rest of this year. And uh, it's just, I'm, I'm so happy to be done with the butterfly keyboard era in our household. And for those of you out there who are, who are not yet done with the butterfly keyboard era in your household, I can assure you that the wait will be worth it when you are finally done. It is so great to be here. In the meantime, hang in there. You too, someday, will be done with the butterfly keyboard and it is glorious on the other side of it. 
Just make sure your laptop doesn't slash your car's tires on its way out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I kind of, I didn't, I didn't quite win the, uh, the the luck lottery on that one. But you know, it's it's fine. I, I, the butterfly keyboard is gone. So when I go to sit in my car for a few hours on Friday morning after sitting on a boat for an hour, uh, so that I can wait for some service van to come give me the tire of shame, so I can actually drive my car, I will be typing on my MacBook Air, my favorite computer I've ever had so far. Uh, with its wonderful non-butterfly keyboard. You know, I don't know if I said this on the air. I don't think I did, but um, there's been a handful of times recently that I've been asked, you know, well, what laptop should I buy? And as we definitely discussed in the past, it's been delightful because I just say a MacBook Air. Like, w- just max out as much as you can, get a MacBook Air. What are you doing with it? Don't care. Get a MacBook Air. And a lot of times people will be hemming and hawing between a MacBook Air and a MacBook Pro, And my favorite way to make this whole situation go away is the following. You know, I have a friend who had a $7,000 iMac who traded or who got rid of it in favor for a $1,000 MacBook Air. And maybe that's not 100% true, but that gets the point across. Yeah, neither of those prices are right, but it's close enough. (laughs) You get the idea. You get the idea. But then the problem just goes away. And and it is quite nice to not really have to think about it. When you not have to be like, "Ah, well... If uh, uh, you know all of that, uh, except in the most you know one-off scenarios, just completely goes away, and it is delightful. Yeah, because we didn't have that for so long. We didn't have like Mm -hmm. an unqualified recommendation of like the default computer to recommend was this, and you didn't have to add a bunch of asterisks to it. Right? We didn't have that for like probably three or four years, and so now we have that again, and it's wonderful. And, And and really, the last one of those that we had was the previous MacBook Air, not the 2018 model, but the 2012 through the, yeah. the 2010 through, you know, 2015 model, but the Retina transition ruined that for the last half of that time, right? So like it really has been a while since we've had that one computer that we could say you need you want a, you want a new a new Mac, you probably want X. Like it's yeah, it's, it's very it's been it's been a long time. It, you're right, it's not since the amphibious MacBook Air that we've been able to do that. <laughs> And I, I, this was also a good time to bring up that Apple has discontinued officially my other favorite computer ever, the iMac Pro. Yeah. I, I shouldn't sigh. Like, I shouldn't sigh. It's for the best. But it's sad when the thing that you're actively using to talk to you gentlemen on right this very moment has been put out to pasture. Um, I, I love this iMac Pro. I am very lucky because I have yet to experience an M1 Mac. And I think once I do, that's going to make me have very uncomfortable feelings about my iMac Pro. <laughs> but um, I love this machine. I love the way it looks. I love the way it, it runs. It's, it's been, by and large, almost you know foolproof for me. Uh, I'm sad to see it go. I really am. It totally makes sense to me why it's going. I, I don't think it's something we need to discuss very much. I mean, basically, modern non-pro iMacs are just as good, if not better, in in some ways. And if you really want to set money aflame, well, okay, we can talk about that in a second then. Uh, <laughs> but if you really want to set money aflame, then you can be absolutely ridiculous and buy a Mac Pro that you don't need. <clears throat> Hi, John. Uh, anyway, so I, I, I'm sad to see it go, but I totally understand it. Marco, tell me why I'm wrong. Should it stay? No, I mean, it should be. Ideally, it would have been updated sometime, you know, and, and the reason why it's going now does make some sense in that, like, they are, I think, really close to releasing, you know, based on the latest rumors, it sounds like the uh, the first Apple Silicon-based iMacs are coming out, like, any day now. 
So it, it does seem like it's about to be replaced by something that should be better. But no, the part I disagree with is that the that the regular iMac is generally better than the iMac Pro now. Uh, I disagree with that. It is it does outperform it in, in many benchmarks and stuff. But what made the iMac Pro so great was that amazing cooling system and the fact that it had like things like ECC RAM and all and the Xeons like all that the high end Pro hardware in a iMac case that you know in this in this you know relatively compact uh totally silent uh thing you know until until it got clogged with permit dust and things started filling on the motherboard but before that like i I think you know john gruber said um in his post about the discontinuation like he said that this might be his favorite intel iMac ever and i think that's actually a fair characterization i it's hard for me to point to any intel mac like the entire Intel Mac era, are any other Intel Macs better than the iMac Pro overall? Yeah, the the, the cheese grater. Uh I don't know. I don't think so. No, no, no I, I, I can't agree. That, that whole that whole lineup. It's the MacBook Air of the desktops. It it was such a great design for so long. It had such incredible flexibility. It could hold host to all so many things. Uh, you know, so many different kinds of upgrades. It was exactly the promise of a tower type computer and they were actually fairly cheap in their sort of in sort of their heyday you could get one for a reasonable amount of money and then just you know soup it up with aftermarket parts and aftermarket ram and run it for years it was it was great see the reason why i think the iMac pro is better so first of all you know when you're judging computers you know when you're trying, trying to figure out like what's the best one ever you know you got to obviously judge it in the context of its day and so when you're judging the Intel iMac or the Intel Mac era, you know, that's that's from 2006 until now, basically, or until, you know, November of last year, when, you know, whenever you want to declare that the Intel Mac era is over, it'd be, you know, 2006 until roughly now. And most of that time, the first Retina Mac was 2012. So most of that time, it was Retina. And the, the, the cheese grater Mac Pro, and indeed, all Mac Pros until the current one, never had a good story for Retina. And so, and that makes it hard. And I also, you know, for for most, you know, context of how of how you want to bower thing, how you want to balance things like power and and heat and size and everything, the cheese graders are huge and loud by comparison to the iMac. They're not loud. They're less noisy than a non-pro iMac. That's for sure. That's true. But but by comparison to the iMac Pro, every Mac Pro ever made, except for the trash can, is pretty loud. But you put them under your desk. They're not on your desk. You don't hear them. Right, but still, so, you know, you have, because the Mac Pro is so much larger and bulkier and louder and, and in, for... But, but it's a different type of machine, like, that's what it's for, it's the big, it's the big truck, right? So I, you have to judge it in the context of, of, if you wanted a big truck, the the big truck to have was this one, and this was the time to have it, because it was back when you could do all your Intel gaming and you had Parrot, it was like a, it was like a gaming PC and a Mac for not that much money, you're not going to convince me. I, I love the iMac Pro. It's great. It was certainly the best Intel iMac that's, that there's ever been. Um, but I, the best I'll give you is a tie with the cheese grater because that entire <laughs> line and design just did exactly what it was supposed to do. Now, I'll grant you, it's for fewer customers. It's more narrow interest, right? It is not the mass market thing, although I would argue that the iMac Pro isn't really particularly mass market either. But if you squint, if you gave someone for free an iMac Pro, they would love it. If you gave someone for, for free a Mac Pro, they probably wouldn't. Unless they're the type of person who would like a Mac Pro. Yeah, right. But, like, the iMac Pro is such an amazing generalist. You know, obviously, it wasn't priced as a generalist, but as a machine, there is almost nobody who had needs that that a desktop could solve at all that couldn't be solved by the iMac Pro. Like, it was so good and continues to be so good for, you know, those out there who, who are still 
using them. Well, you're, you're glossing over your problems with it. If something goes wrong, you got to bring the whole thing in, and then when it fills with spider eggs, the fan gets noisy. And that never happened right. to my ancient, <laughs> much-abused, dented, dust-filled 2008 Mac Pro that just trundled <laughs> along for 10 years without complaint. Yeah, and that I'll give you that. I mean, that's that's the, the problem that I've had with every iMac is that it's great for like three years and then and something starts getting worse at that point usually seemingly related to thermals or the screen uh wearing out uh, so yeah i will give you that but still what an amazing machine and especially one that seemed like it seemed like it was not part of apple's long-term plan to create it and certainly once they did create it it, it seemed like it was kind of a bridge product to this next era uh and to the, to the next iMac pro but Man, what a great machine that was. You know, it kind of like in the same way that like it didn't seem like Nintendo thought the Switch was going to be a big deal or the or Nintendo didn't have a lot of time to make the Switch hardware really fancy. So they used basically, you know, like the Nvidia whatever platform they used that's like they didn't really customize it that much. That kind of feels like what the iMac Pro was. It, it seemed like it was kind of a rush job, but they did such an amazing job on it and what what resulted from it was so good <laughs> that it's kind of it, like it, it it should be on some level possibly kind of frustrating to Apple that it, it did seem like it was kind of a bridge product and it was so much better <laughs> than what came before or in some ways after. Well, it wasn't supposed to be a bridge product. Right? This, was, this was supposed to be the Pro Max story before they had a change of heart and decided to continue making towers. So I think that's why it's so good that this was supposed to be the flagship and that before it shipped, but after it had, it had been designed and mostly developed, they said, oh, no, we got actually got to make a Mac Pro. And they did that big announcement, you know, like so I that when this comes out and it looks like a bridge machine in, in hindsight. And when you look at the, the whole line as it exists today, but I think when it was conceived, it was like, this is why we don't need a Mac Pro anymore. We're just going to have such an amazing iMac. And they did have such an amazing iMac, but they miscalculated uh, what their pro customers want and need and accidentally made an amazing all in one computer. <laughs> yeah. One thing I want to add to this, though, and the reason why I was in topics is, like, it's interesting that it's being discontinued rather than doing what they're doing with the Intel iMacs, because as we all know, all these Intel Macs are going away. Like, there's there's ARM-based iMacs coming out, and the ARM-based Macs are going to come out and replace the Intel ones, right? So every Intel Mac is essentially, quote-unquote, discontinued. Like, there's we see the end of the line for all the Intel Macs, right? With the possible exception of the Mac Pro, we don't know when that's what's happened there, but probably eventually, right? Um but why why the premature announcement? Is it because they don't want to deal with getting a Xeon stock? They don't want to deal with the parts of this low volume thing? Like, especially as Marco noted, it's so so close, we think, to the ARM uh iMac introduction. Why pre-announce this? Were they was it so popular they were running out of stock and they didn't want to bother building anymore? It's kind of weird that of all the computers to sort of pre-announce and say, hey, get them while they last, because they're running out and we're not making any more, that they chose to do the iMac Pro. My best guess is that there was some component of it that they can't get anymore because, you know, it, it, it hasn't been updated in three years, three and a half years, whatever it's been. Well, they, they can't get such old Xeons anymore. <laughs> well, I mean, Intel sells Xeons forever. It probably wasn't Xeon, but maybe it was like the GPU or some other component. Like it could be it could be a lot of I mean, it could be almost any component in it, because at this point, like Apple's not going to invest in the engineering and testing when, you know, all the overhead required for any kind of component swap. So if any part of that computer that if they can't get it anymore at this point it's yeah that they're just going to kill it so that's probably what happened is like some component they can't get anymore the other thing i was thinking about for this is um we don't know yet of course because they haven't announced uh, the arm imax but it's it's an it's an open question of whether we were talking about this before the arm transition started will they make an imac pro in the arm era um 
there's no reason they can't because you know it's it's a it fills a different role in their line it is an all-in-one computer with all those trade-offs but you could make an all-in-one computer that has pro-like internals you know ecc ram and a high-end cpu and so on and so forth but now that we've seen what their arm uh hardware looks like i first of all i don't know the answer to this question whether the current arm Macs have ecc ram um i'm pretty sure they don't but i've also i also remember reading stuff about how uh all, all of the modern RAM standards, if you squinted them, have a little bit of error correcting baked into them. But anyway, set aside the ECC RAM for a second. Does Apple want to introduce a CPU variant that is the desktop CPU variant for the iMac, but a pro version of that? Because without that and without some other feature, how do you differentiate an iMac Pro from a plain iMac and in the ARM era. And the Intel era was easy. You put Xeons in it and you give it ECC RAM, you give it much better cooling. It was very well differentiated. Plus it was slightly darker gray <laughs> and had a cooler <laughs> keyboard, right? But in the ARM era, I thus far, having seen what Apple has put out, it doesn't seem like they want to make a huge variety of different system on a chips and or a huge variety of different hardware. So although Apple could, of course, make a CPU with like more cores or a system, you know, like they, they could pro it up a little bit in the inside of that iMac Pro. I'm guessing that they're not going to bother doing that, but instead say this is the sort of, you know, hardware set, Apple Silicon hardware set that defines an iMac. And we'll make a line of iMacs with them and you can get good, better, best. And some part of it will vary probably just storage or whatever. Maybe they'll come in colors. And that's it. And we don't have a pro product for you because how would we make it pro? Especially if it has an integrated GPU that's even higher, uh, you know, bill to say, okay, we're going to make a whole new system on a chip just for the iMac Pro that like nobody's going to buy. Um, so it, it's sad that the iMac Pro is going away, but I think the result of that will be no ARM iMac Pro, but every ARM-based iMac, kind of like every ARM-based laptop so far and, and Mac Mini, will be so good that no one will care. Because <laughs> you know we, they're going to be faster than the iMac Pro. The plain iMacs are already faster than the iMac Pro. They're going to be quieter. They're going to you know just everything about them is going to be better. The only possible exception is the iMac Pro. Could you could get that with a pretty beefy uh, GPU, and it may be tough uh, for Apple to beat that with an integrated GPU on an iMac unless they really go all in on it. Because remember, I'm this is the prediction that they're going to make a single system on a chip for the entire iMac line, not a custom one for an iMac Pro with a much bigger GPU. And we'll see what happens. Um, but I'm sad. I'm sad that it's going away. But, you know, hey, it, we don't know what's coming, and it could be way, way better. It sure, sure seems to be. Like I'm only sad in the sense that it is. it was a really, really good product. And I'm sad in a like, nostalgia, fondness way. Not that I want to buy one right, right now, because, <laughs> you know, we're, again, we're so close. <laughs> so close to the replacement. This seems like it would be a terrible time to buy one. Uh, but, man, was it good. All right, let's return to neutral just very briefly. Um, I offended some people with my why buy Audi question from last week, uh, but thankfully I was not besmirching Tesla, so I only offended a handful of people. Um, the only really good answer I heard, and I did hear some decent answers, but the one really good answer I heard uh, from a couple of people were you buy Audi for all-wheel drive. Because if you look at, say, uh, particularly Volkswagen and to some degree Porsche, most Volkswagens are not all-wheel drive. In fact, you know, outside of the SUVs, 
and maybe a wagon or two. I think that mine is the only one. I might have that wrong. It doesn't matter. Um, but pretty much every Audi is all-wheel drive. And so that is one thing. Also, a bunch of Europeans reminded me of Skoda. And what's the other one that I'm not thinking of? There's one other. That's a Volkswagen Auto Group brand that's even crummier than Volkswagen. I can't think of what it was off the top of my head. But <laughs> suffice to say, there, there are things that exist in, in Europe that don't exist here. Uh, and and that is also true. And that changes kind of the, the relative positioning of Volkswagen, Audi, and Porsche, and so on. Um, but yeah, all-wheel drive. That's a pretty good reason to buy Audi. Uh, Kiss Guy. Kiss Guy is real. Uh, this was, we were ta- I don't remember how it came up, but we were talking about and I think John had brought it up about how the Foo Fighters had asked a gentleman on stage who was dressed as one of the people from Kiss, and he played uh, the Foo Fighters song Monkey Wrench with them. And I finally, a few days after we recorded, got the chance to watch that video, and it is absolutely delightful. You should definitely watch it, and we'll put a link to this in the show notes, as well as um, a kind of behind-the-scenes, if you will, and, or an interview anyway with, with the gentleman who was Kiss Guy. Uh, so this is this is both of these are worth your time. They were they were delightful. Yeah, we didn't have the link to the video in last week's show, so I wanted to include in this one. And the Kiss Guy's real part is uh, like when I, we tweeted about this and we're going back and forth on Twitter, and a lot of people are like that's obviously fake. He was a plant. That guy was there. Like is this set up? Uh, you know, people are so cynical. But uh, here's a link to this article, which is an interview with the person. And he says, no, it wasn't a setup. Yes, I really did come to the show with a sign. Yes, they really did pull me out of the audience. Uh, so believe who you want, but I choose to believe this was a actual, real, spontaneous thing that happened uh, because someone came to the show dressed as Kiss with a giant side that said, let me play Monkey Wrench. Uh, and he did. That's all it took. You know, and I, I didn't realize, too, this is like a thing that they do. Like the, the, the Foo Fighters yeah. do this frequently. And so like that's it's different when it's like a thing. And so you can go to a show and actually expect that it might happen to you and you can actually prepare and practice the thing that you want to. You know, so that's I, I think that actually makes it very plausible. Right. And, you know, I mean, this guy was dressed up as Kiss and had a giant sign. Like, if you want to get attention, if you want to be the one who gets pulled up on stage to do the thing, this is a great way to do it. So I totally believe it's like they don't have to set this up ahead of time and, you know, have their people go out and talk to somebody and give them a seat and say, now you come here and we'll call on you. That Like, that's there's no point to doing that. Right. So I believe I believe Kiss Guy is real. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see here. What else is next? We've got Ben Packard writing us uh, with regard to Swift quote unquote header files. Um, it is, let me get this right. It's control command up. And if that is out of order, I apologize. I'm reading from the show notes. Control command up and control command down to toggle a Swift files header view in Xcode, which is in the menuing system as the oh so obvious navigate menu. Okay, it's so fine so far. Jumped to next slash previous counterpart. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's the counter. It's the counterpart file. Like we were saying, going between the .m and the .h in Objective C. So that makes some kind of sense. Of course, mm. when you do this, you aren't traveling from one file to the other. What you were doing is taking the file that you're editing, which is a .swift file, and changing it into a read-only view that only shows you essentially like what you would see in a header file, just the signatures of of the. I think guess it's the public functions. I don't, maybe it's just some of the functions. Anyway, the odd thing about this is it's not Command Control up and down arrow to toggle. Any like command control up arrow is like jump to my one. It's one of the, it's either next to previous jump to previous counterpart. And the the opposite direction is jump to next counterpart. You can just continually hit one of those commands, command control up, 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 up. And as you hit up, it just goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. But they're, they are both toggles for each other. It's very strange, very strange adaptation of those 
keyboard shortcuts. So you don't have to like look at what mode you're in and hit in the opposite direction. Just any of the, the any either one of those keystrokes will toggle it to the opposite of what it's currently in. And there's a delay when you toggle it too. So like it's is it like compiling it to extract the metadata to find out the signatures? <laughs> I'm assuming it caches it after the first time or whatever. But there it is, somewhat hidden feature of Xcode. Indeed. Um, I don't remember exactly where in the flow this happened, um, and maybe I made it up in a fugue state, but I could swear, and I was trying to repeat it a moment ago, and I can't prove to myself where it was, but I could swear at some point when I was doing the uh, Commonwealth of Virginia's uh, uh, vaccination uh, pre-request whatever thing, which happens to be at vaccinate.virginia.gov, at one point during that process, you know how I logged in, Marco? Passwordless login with an email link? That's exactly right. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have much to say about it other than that, but I thought I thought at least Marco would be amused, and I thought I would hear at least a, a, a grunt of disappointment from John, but I only got half of that, so you can't win them all. <laughs> I was on mute, but I, but I do disapprove. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> all right, so moving right along, uh, we have a very interesting entry in the show notes entitled Families, colon, how do they work? Question mark. I would assume like magnets. Uh, I don't know. How do they work? I'm a little worried. Is this about to become a sex ed podcast or like a marriage counseling podcast? <laughs> Neither one. Lucky you. Yeah, it's it's gonna what it's gonna become is picture it, Sicily, March 11th, 2011. Yeah, <laughs> this is the when you're hearing this. If you hear it on day of release, it's possible that you were hearing this on exactly the 10 year anniversary of a podcast episode I did. Uh, called No I Life is an Island, in which I complained that Apple didn't understand how families work. As in, families have multiple people uh, who may take photos, but the photos, some of those photos, a subset of those photos, belong to the family and not the individual person. That's why in the days before digital photography, you would have family photo albums and not mom's photo album and dad's photo album and the son's photo album and the daughter's photo album, you would just have a family photo album and many other things related to that. The idea that uh, the iLife suite at that time uh, had the idea that you were an individual person who lived by yourself and had your own silo of things. And if you were in a family, every single person had their own things. And it was frustrating then. And here we are 10 years later, and I thought it would be a chance to revisit this topic. Now, in June of 2014, a mere three years after that episode, Apple rolled out their family thing, family sharing or whatever, where you can build a little family in iCloud and say, what is it? The organizer, I'm the family organizer, and here are the adults in the family, and here are the children in the family, and so I can form a little family. And I remember being optimistic. A mere three years after complaining about something on a podcast, Apple has taken action to lay the groundwork to solve this problem once and for all because now it understands my family and it knows the people belong to it. Now it's only a, you know, a matter of just updating all the relevant programs to also understand family, families and allow them to have a relationship with each other with respect to their, you know, iCloud data. They did a little bit of that, like with purchases, where one person can purchase thing and the other people can see that person's purchases. And uh, fast forward to 2021, they did uh, sharing of in-app purchases as well. But in general, that's been all the progress that they've made. They set up families and they did purchase sharing and a bunch of other integrations, but they didn't really do where do it where it counts, which is the actual data. Even something as simple as contacts, which we've been talking about a little bit recently. It's a tiny amount of data. And again, in the pre-digital days, very often a household 
would have an address book that had the names and phone numbers of everybody that the family knew. Granted, children could have their own address books with the names and phone numbers of their friends, but there was still a family address book. And so when grandma moved, you didn't have to update it in every single person's thing because grandma's address was only and phone number was only in the family address book, right? So the concept of having a family that shares some subset of data amongst themselves while also having their own private data, a great place to try that out would have been on contacts. But of course, the big one is photos. Photos continue to be a thorn to everyone's side. We talk about uh, Ask ATP. We get questions, repeated questions, and sometimes we answer them like once a year just to get them out there. We are constantly being asked, hey, um, how do you guys deal with uh, photos in your family? Because I'm, I have photos in my photo library. My wife has photos in her photo library. And how do they, you know, how, how do you deal with sharing them? Do you have one photo library? Do you have a third Apple ID that doesn't belong to either person that you both sign into? Do you have an Apple Store ID, even though there's family sh- uh, sharing and purchases? What do you do? What's the solution? How should I do this? And it's a, you know, it's a disappointing question to get because kind of like the laptop situation used to be, we don't have a good answer. There's no good solution for this. And we always say, well, this is a problem that Apple has to solve. I used to say it optimistically, like, well, they just rolled out family sharing and probably maybe in the next, you know, few years, they'll roll out new versions of their apps that will support family sharing in a sophisticated way. Nope, hasn't happened. (laughs) So here we are 10 years later to the day, uh, still no progress on one of the biggest remaining sort of fundamentally annoying things about being what you know, an ideal Apple customer. You've got a family, you buy all sorts of Apple junk, you sign up for all the services, and you just want to have like a normal, smooth lifestyle and workflow with Apple's stuff. And so much of it works well, uh, you know, multiple user support on Macs, people being able to log into them, all the new, the new Macs and the laptops, purchase sharing, even media sharing, uh, managing what apps your kids buy, stuff like that. But the family photo library and the family collection of contacts, just, just I mean, contacts is, is more minor because I've just given up and I say my wife's is the canonical contact thing. When I need to look up someone's info, I go to her address book. But it, again, the volume of data is small. It's not a big deal. But photos, it is just such a pain. And to celebrate 10 years, Photos on my Mac has decided that my previous technique, this is what I was doing, and I do not recommend this because it's terrible, but my previous technique is I would take pictures on my phone and then I would plug connect my phone with a USB cable to a Mac that's logged in as my wife and manually import from my phone via USB photos into her photo library periodically. This is like a Casey workflow where it's like, oh, I just got to remember every <laughs> yep. once in a while, every once in mm-hmm. a while I got to do this thing. Well, to celebrate 10 years, Photos said, you know what? That's not going to work anymore. What happens now is I plug in my phone and it thinks for a really long time because it, because the Photos app on the Mac, latest version of everything, the Photos version, <laughs> latest version of iOS, latest version of, of Mac OS, the Photos app is like, hmm, seems like you've imported a lot of these photos already. Uh, so I have to sort these in the UI to say, okay, here's all the ones you imported before and then here's photos that haven't yet been imported. First of all, I don't need to do this at all. If it just gave me a reverse chronological list of photos, I would just scroll a little bit and select the ones that I wanted to be imported. Second of all, I intentionally don't import all of them. If there's like a screenshot or some random photo that I don't want in the photo library, I don't or import toe. it. Right, exactly, or my toe pictures. <laughs> That's not and, going on this show. Yeah. No, so, sir. <laughs> I don't import those. What that means is that from that point on, I'm going to continue to see those photos presented to me as, hey, do you want to import these? Because you haven't imported them before, right? But recently, all this broke down, and now I just get kind of like a a grid of blank thumbnails. If I scroll too quickly, sometimes photos will crash. Sometimes it will just stop filling in thumbnails. Like, 
and I'll just have a bunch of blank thumbnails. And now I don't know which ones to select to import because it's just a, grid, a giant grid of blank thumbnails that will never fill in. This, by the way, is after you get past the first mini boss, which is when you plug in your phone <laughs> with photos, it says, please unlock your phone to, ac- to to allow photos to access the pictures on your phone. Like it tells you to unlock your phone. Like there's a prompt on the screen that says, please unlock your phone. And if you if you follow this instruction, say, okay, you look at your pick up your phone, which is plugged in with a USB cable. You you swipe up face ID. It's unlocked. Put the phone down. Photos will continue to have the on its screen a giant window that says "Please unlock your phone." No progress indicator. No nothing. Just says "Please unlock your phone." It's like, but I just did unlock my phone. What do you want me to do? And that will stay there for thirty seconds, a minute, two minutes, until eventually it goes. Okay, I'm going to starting to load your thumbnails. Right. It's the worst UI ever, but if you if you get past that and you know that it's just lying to you and, and you really did unlock your phone and just be patient, eventually it will start filling your screen with uh, empty uh, thumbnails that don't show anything, just totally blank gray rectangles. So what I've taken to doing now is I use image capture, which still does work and shows me a reverse chronological list of photos and has no awareness of which ones I've imported. And I manually import photos into a folder with image capture. This is sounding more and more like Casey, isn't it? Oh, and yeah. I, and then I drag those photos <laughs> in, from the folder onto uh you know the photos app again this is all on my wife's account and then import them into the photo library and that as far as i can tell is a lossless way to get them in but it's a super pain in the butt happy 10 year anniversary that is utterly <laughs> preposterous a uh, couple of quick observations uh first of all you know it's it's a kind of uncomfortable feeling that a casey workflow is indicative of something being just unbelievably wrong which I, I can't really fault you for that analogy, but just, it's not just a, specifically it's, about photos. I don't know. Maybe yeah. your other workflows are fine. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and that's only that's the second time in like 48 hours I've heard some sort of reference like that because, you know, we're, we're doing a little bit of work on the house and we had an electrician come out and visit it. And he was explaining that he was probably going to do the work for our house on Saturday because that's when he does his special projects. And I never got a clear read from him, even after asking him directly, does that mean we're just really important to you or that more there is our project that jacked up? And I'm not really sure. Sounds like um, you're really unimportant. <laughs> That's how yeah, I would read I that. <laughs> I don't, I'm not even sure. But nevertheless. You're like special teams in football. Like you're, you're football players technically, but you're the kickers. Yeah, right, right. Uh, I don't even know. But um, Now we're going to hear from all the kickers. Yeah, <laughs> it's so true. I don't think we uh, will. <laughs> well, we'll see. Um, but nevertheless, uh, I, I, I can't believe, I remember this episode, I cannot believe it has been literally a decade. And, you know, this is one of those times, and I think I feel like I've made a similar speech a few times in the last few months, but as a consumer and user of Apple products, how is this not fixed already? How is this still a thing 10 years on? I mean, my son, my eldest child, is six and a half. This problem has been going on almost four years longer than he's been alive. <laughs> like <laughs> it, it's, it's, and I know that doesn't really, it's not a great metric for anyone but me, but it's a pretty startling metric for me. And on the one side, I feel like, how is this possible? You are one of the biggest companies in the world. Your job is to fix things like this. That is why you exist. That is what you're here for. You don't get to take shortcuts like me or Marco or John do. You don't get to do the easy way out like me or Marco or John sometimes do. What you get to do as, as an Apple employee is do the hard thing, like always. That's, that's what you do. And I can't believe that 10 years on, 
this isn't solved. Now, the flip side of that, however, is A, this is an impossibly difficult problem. Well, not impossibly difficult, but a very difficult problem. A very difficult problem. And I don't envy the people who are surely working, well, maybe working right now <laughs> trying to fix it. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's challenging. And this is why software is hard. And this is why software is difficult. And um, shoot, I think it was on Dubai Friday, maybe on the after show, that Merlin was describing, if I recall correctly, describing all the what ifs and gotchas involved with some piece of, I think, home automation software, or maybe it was control plane with you on rec diffs. I don't remember where it was, but he was, he was backing into in a way that I've never heard someone who doesn't write software for a living able to describe it. Like something that sounds easy is actually really freaking hard. And this, this is something that sounds hard. So imagine how hard it would be. And the funny thing is, I almost wonder if we're better off this way because as much as I love Apple, server-side stuff is not often their strong suit. <laughs> and the idea of them conquering something like this kind of scares me a little bit. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm ye of little faith. My, my recollection of the discussion of this back in 2011 was that I recognized that it's a hard problem. Uh, you know, starting with just like the policy decisions you have to make, forget about actually implementing it or whatever, but just saying like, how should it work is actually a fairly complicated question. Um, because the, the way I described it, like you do want to have a family photo album, but you also want to allow people to have photos of their own. So how do you even present that interface, right? And then comes the implementation. And this was back before Apple was as good as they are today with dealing with photos, period. So I recognize that it's a hard problem. I didn't expect them to solve this problem immediately. Again, I said I was optimistic when three years later, they just introduced the concept of families because that's a prerequisite <laughs> for dealing with this. Having formally baked in, built in, supported concept of a family of Apple IDs, right? And they did that and it was three years later and I was optimistic. So I wasn't expecting them to come around the next year and fix this or even in five years and fix it. But in 10 years, if you told me in 2011, in 10 years, they won't even have taken a swing at this. I would be like 10 years. Like that's the thing about hard problems. I don't expect them to be fixed quickly. I know it's going to be hard, but I also, like, like Casey was getting at, it's not like a mysterious problem that no one ever had. That's why we get asked this question all the time. We will always get asked this question on this program. It will be like it's some baseline percentage of Ask ATP is people asking this exact question in one way or another because everybody who is in any kind of family arrangement has the same situation. We all, and especially now that all the kids have phones and stuff, we all take pictures, but a lot of those pictures, if you're on a family vacation, are family photos and dealing with that dealing like i just want to look at the family photos and having people send you photos and airdrop them and send them and people like take screenshots of photos and give them to each other like with the quality loss and the metadata loss going into that and just the general hassle and not keeping track of who has what photos where and where was that photo it's a problem that is not going away and it is not a mysterious unforeseen problem granted you don't fix it in your version one like version one maybe you do simple let's just do photo libraries and internet able photo libraries right and then let's introduce families. They just need to take the next step. And Casey's, Casey's doubt about whether they're working on this. Like, I, I remember saying the same thing probably on this episode. Like, surely someone <laughs> in Apple is working on this or at least thinking about it, but it's going to take a while. I really hope that's true. I really hope someone is working on it and thinking about it. And they haven't just given up or convinced themselves that, you know what? One photo library per Apple ID is fine. This is not a problem that needs to be solved. People will just stop complaining about it. And I don't think it's like, a terrible problem like the butterfly keyboard or something that needs to be addressed immediately and like you know something that'll get written about in a, in a mainstream uh, i was gonna say newspaper or whatever like in the mainstream press <laughs> will catch on to this it's just 
a minor annoyance that anybody who wants to sort of get a handle on their digital life will inevitably come to some point and say, this part is annoying. This whole thing with the photo libraries and who has what photo, that part is annoying. Maybe they'll never get there in contact, although arguably I have the same complaint of like, you know, if you have friends of the family, it's a pain to have their contact information in various versions in various individual people's contacts rather than shared in some way. But I, I just think it's, they, it needs to be addressed. Google tried to address it with their, like, you can mark these photos to be shared with other people in your family. Their solution isn't great, but at least they did something. At least they tried something. And, you know, if, if Google cared about this at all, they could make a second cut and a third cut or whatever. That's not the Google way. They'll just eventually cancel the product or whatever. But, but, but Apple, of all companies, I think they are p- well positioned to solve this problem. I just want them to do it. So I guess we'll meet back here in 10 years from now and see if oh, they did you know, I I would like to hope and think that the three of us will still be lucky enough to be doing this in 10 years. Can you imagine if in literally 10 years, we will all still be in the same position? Like, can you imagine what that conversation will be like? Oh, my gosh. It, I'm going yes. to put it in my calendar right now because that's why this <laughs> – I, I put this in my calendar probably around 2014. And now I'm going to put the 10-year anniversary in my calendar now for us to revisit this. Oh, probably going to sound a lot like this. <laughs> I, I hope not. <laughs> Golly, I hope not. Uh, I don't know. Well, the good news is you can do something about it. And what you can do is you can move from Apple Photos or whatever it's called, Photos in the Cloud. I don't even know what it's called anymore. iCloud uh, Photo Library is what you're you looking thank for. You. Yep, thank you. You can move from iCloud Photo Library to Google Photos because Apple will let you do it now. Maybe this is how they fixed it. They'll just tell people who whine about this, oh, go to Google Photos. It's great. I mean, so this... Uh, this is interesting. I, it may be uh, GDPR related, right? Why does Apple ever do anything like this? Um, lots of companies uh, that have tried to be good service citizens have at various times had uh, abilities for you to export your data in a nice format. Um, Google has an entire, what is it called? Google Takeout, like an entire section of their website that's like, here's all the data Google has about you and here are ways you can dump it out. And Google did this long before they were required to by law, as far as I know. It's like just part of it was back when Google's motto was don't be evil. And they actually did things that were trying not to be evil. Man, remember Um, that? Those were the days. (laughs) Yeah. There were always a lot of asterisks on that, though. (laughs) True. But like uh, the people who believed it and were working at the company and making decisions about products. And so you come out with stuff. I remember when it first came out, I was like, oh, this doesn't help Apple. uh, Apple doesn't help Google competitively at all. They just did it because it's the right thing to do. You know, you can, here's your data, you can get it out in a non-proprietary format and then do with it what you want. Same, I mean, they obviously did it the other way with in, uh, importing as well. I think I got all my email into Gmail by like importing it in an inbox format or something. Or I exported it from, uh, what, Claris email or whatever the hell I was using then in inbox format. And then... It's pronounced mbox, rhymes with mbop. Mbox. But I've always appreciated their, <laughs> their export. In fact, speaking of calendar events, I have an annual calendar event that reminds me to dump all of my Gmail email to my local file system just so I, you know, you know if and when uh, Google, like, uh, unceremoniously cancels my entire Google account for some reason that I can't appeal or talk to a human about, I will at least have all of my email for all history up to, uh, on average, six months before <laughs> that happened. Um, and I also do I also do a pop Uh, of gmail down to my local thing in a local email client although i think uh outlook is taking away pop support so i have to switch to apple mail which is its own can of worms anyway uh, export 
Um, Twitter does the same thing. You can get, and if you don't know this and you care about this at all, you can dump all of your own tweets uh, in a very cool sort of local HTML and JavaScript uh, version to, you know, as a big zip file that just expanded to a bunch of files. And I do that periodically, dump all my tweets just because that's the thing I care about. And I like that companies uh, provide me a way to do that. This, I think, is the first time I've seen Apple do anything close to that. It does, As far as I know, it doesn't give you a dump locally. It can only send to, let me look at this, I can only send to Google Photos. They, they say it's a, you know, uh, request to transfer a copy of iCloud Photos to another service, but another service means Google Photos right now. Um, I looked at this because, uh, as we've discussed in past episodes, I do, Google Photos is my backup, 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 backup service. <laughs> uh, I have the Google backup and sync thing, shoving all of my photos into Google Photos. Uh, the backup and sync application is terrible and does a bad job, and I'm pretty sure it, it misses photos, but it's better than nothing. Um, and so I just run that continuously, and it's like my fifth-level backup of my photos in case everything else fails. Uh, I will still have 90% of my photos in some form or another in Google Photos. Um, and I pay for all that storage and all that other stuff. So I looked at this and said, okay, well, here is this has got to be better supported than what I'm doing now because it's Apple doing the transfer and it's like an offline thing and they'll do it over the course of several days and preserve as much of the metadata as they can, I hope. And, you know, because they're Apple, they know about their photo library format, right? But as far as I can tell, having not tried this, this is a thing where they will take all your photos and put them into Google Photos and that's it. And then they just sit there, right? And so then if you want to do that again, they say, oh, do you want us to export all your photos again and put them into Google Photos? Well, no, Apple. Actually, I don't. I want you to just put in the photos that are that have been that have been added or modified since the last time you did it. And they're like, no, that's not what this is about. <laughs> this is like, we take your whole photo library <laughs> and put it in Google Photos. Yes. You've misinterpreted our relationship. <laughs> right. And it's like, I don't. And after that, that's it. Right. And so in theory, I could transfer all my photos into Google Photos. And then every year, first delete all my photos from Google Photos somehow. And then do the transfer again, right? But that's much more cumbersome, especially since the transfer says takes several days or whatever. Much more cumbersome and will protect far fewer photos than my current cruddy Google backup and sync thing. So I'm glad Apple is doing this thing. Uh, it's a good way. If you go with Apple Photos and you get frustrated and just like decide you're never going to do anything with Apple again, it is an escape hatch for your photos. You can send them to another service. Hope you like Google because that's your only choice. Um there are other escape patches. If you have any Mac that has a local copy of all your photos, and you should have at least one Mac that has a local copy of all your photos, you can, of course, export all of them, you know, export unmodified originals right to another disk or something. Like, there's other ways to get your photos out. I don't like your photos are trapped, but uh, I presume that this transfer service will try to preserve as much of the as much of the original quality and information about your photos as it can. What I really care about, and the reason I'm really stuck with Apple Photos, is all the photos I care about have edits. I don't think there's a single photo that I've, you know, made a favorite or whatever that doesn't have some kind of edits to it. And if you gave me all my originals back, it would like it would be like, okay, I hope you enjoy doing 10 to 15 years worth of edits over again. Hope you remember what those were. <laughs> and I don't. And I don't want to do 10 to 15 years worth of edits. Um, and I also don't want to bake in my edits like Casey does because I'm not a monster. So uh, I do like having my photos in Apple Photos because Apple preserves my originals while maintaining my all my metadata, all my face recognition, all my tags, and yes, all of my edits. 
So I'm uh, not going to use this service even to make a backup, but I would be super excited if Apple ever enhanced this service to sort of do incremental backups or periodic dumps or something like that. But I'm not holding my breath. And honestly, they should do the family stuff first. Yeah, I, I'm a little more cynical about the motivation for this. I mean, I, I think they're clearly right now in a time where they're under a, a pretty significant and seemingly rapidly increasing amount of regulatory and antitrust pressure and possibly legal pressure from competitors as well. So I think a lot of the moves that we're seeing Apple make recently that seem kind of like, huh, I never thought they would do that, or that's a little odd. Why did they do that? I bet a lot of it is like they are trying to dodge some kind of regulatory problem or legal problem they see coming down the pipe. And in this case, you know, Apple Photos or iCloud Photo Library is part of, uh, you know, Apple's possible monopoly risk in the sense that it has way better integration with the iPhone than anything else can. Uh, and and so it is kind of part of their, like, you know, unfair advantage moat that competitors could have a problem with. And so maybe this is just, like, something else they can put out there that didn't take them a lot of time or effort, probably, that they can, you know, they don't have to really radically change the way they do anything or really take any significant risks by doing stuff like this, but it can relieve a little bit of pressure that's building up somewhere in that, you know, antitrust area. I feel like the thing about the service is I, it's probably expensive for Apple to do, uh, and they're only saved by the fact that no one is going to do this because it is obscure. Like, there's no big shiny gooey button to do it, like, in photos. Like, it's not an obvious thing. People who don't listen to tech podcasts or read Apple News probably don't even know that it exists and will have to be told that it exists by someone at an Apple store or, or a tech nerd friend or something, right? Uh, because to do this, what they're probably doing behind the scenes is running a big batch job in one of their data centers that calls the Google Photos API that reads photos from where Apple keeps them in their cloud storage and writes them through Google's public APIs that they expose to the Google Photos service to your Google Photos account, which means they have to allocate computing resources uh, for multiple days for each individual customer. And then they have to do all the data transfer from wherever the data is being stored. So they're reading from their own storage and then writing over the wire, over the network into Google's thing. And I don't know if Google's charging per API call, but probably something like that. It's not like, I don't think Google's giving us all away for free for an, for just to do a single person's photo library is a non-trivial amount of money that Apple is spending on, you know, what somebody's data centers or, whatever, you know, even if it's just electricity and cooling, Right. It is way out of proportion to the normal stuff that you get for Apple essentially for free. So, yeah, this definitely does read like a thing that we either have to do for regulatory reasons or that we want to be able to say that we offer. But please don't do this. Like if <laughs> if if any if like 50 percent of Apple's customers did this, they would lose a ton of money, uh, not to mention, you know, losing all the photos. And, you know, I'm sure Google would be happy to have a bunch of more people's photos to analyze or whatever. So. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a weird feature. It every like you were saying, Marco. Everything they do, whether it really is motivated by the current political climate or not, it's just you view it through that lens. If it's any, if it's in any way uh, you know relevant to that, if it in any way helps or hurts them, you just immediately view it through that lens. And the the timing of all these things is so coincidental that you have to believe there's some motivation here. But but like they had someone had to write this. Someone had to code up this whole batching system and a way of initiating it. And I can't think of anything else that you can do from Apple that you can initiate 
and then they will run a batch job for you and tell you several days later that it has completed. <laughs> like, there's nothing else like that. Right? Uh, apps, just, app review is kind of like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose. But but they're like they're the whole point is most of the time they're not doing anything for you. You're in a queue. Right? <laughs> then they pop you out of the queue and you get your review. But this is just like the whole time that you're waiting, presumably that you're not in a queue. They're just you know grinding away because if you have you know hundreds of thousands of photos, uh, it's going to take a while. You know, I, t- I would like to challenge um, something you said a little while ago. I don't know that Google would charge Apple for this, because if you think about it, Google is almost certainly taking on a customer at this point. So why wouldn't they, you know, welcome Apple with open arms and all of this customer's data? And go, of course, bring that to Google Photos, because we're going to charge them soon. Works for us. Uh, I don't know what Google's uh, business model is. Like, normally you want to have API limits, and like the, the customer here is not the individual. Well, I guess it is. They're authenticating the individual, but like Apple potentially could send a lot of API requests to Google if even yeah. if any non trivial number of people did this. And then Google will throttle them, and then Apple can't do your thing within this promised seven days or whatever. And then maybe money has to change hands. But yeah, in general, cloud providers like, you know, S3 or whatever will make it very easy to get data into S3, uh, but much more expensive to get it out again. So it's not it's not that they don't charge you at all, because sometimes like we won't charge you for data transfer in, but we'll charge you per API call a tiny amount for each thing. Like and, you know, like I said, that's for like individual customers to AWS, right? For Apple and Google, the relationship between their two data centers and what kind of deal they work out. um, Who knows? I I don't you know, I I don't know if any money changed hands here. There's any kind of agreement, but I think there has to be some kind of discussion because. It would be pretty surprising for Google just to wake up one day and, you know, say a tiny, tiny fraction of a percentage start doing this, even just out of curiosity, like I almost did it. That's going to show up on Google's radar of like, whoa, what what's going on here? Suddenly there's a huge spike in API calls to our Google Photos API and these giant batches and they're all coming from this one Apple data center. And then, you know, I feel like they would they would have a discussion before this rather than just surprise Google with it. But who knows? Stranger things have happened. So a few weeks ago, it was almost a month ago now, uh, it was announced, I guess, that um, Apple was cracking down on apps with, quote, irrationally high prices, quote, as App Store scams are exposed. And so Apple said that, in in very apple way, customers expect the App Store to be a safe and trusted marketplace for purchasing digital goods. Apps should never betray this trust by attempting to rip off or cheat users in any way. Unfortunately, the prices you've selected for your app... Oh, I'm sorry. This is uh, in the case of you charging $1,000 for a fart app. Uh, The prices you've selected for your app or in-app purchase products in your app do not reflect the value of the features and content offered to the user. Charging irrationally high prices for content or services with limited value is a ripoff to customers and is not appropriate for the App Store. And then they give you, you know, different resolution steps. Uh, The next submission of this app may require a longer review time, and it won't be eligible for an expedited review until this issue is resolved. Thank you, but please get off my lawn. Love, Apple. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I don't know that there's that much to say about this other than finally. <laughs> I mean, this seems completely reasonable to me. And I was thinking about this a little bit earlier. Um, if Apple wants to have this like walled garden, there's no side loading, we are the only way, this is the way to get on the phone. Uh, I mean, in and of itself, I don't have an an extreme problem with that, although that's kind of a discussion for another day. But if you're going to do that, if you're going to cultivate this walled garden, it better have some pretty flowers in it and it better not be full of weeds. And so if this is Apple finally weeding, then okay, cool. Let's 
keep let's get these weeds and all the other weeds that are there because there's a lot of them and this analogy is getting beat to death but nevertheless you get the idea is that <laughs> there's so much there's so much garbage and just nasty stuff in the app store that's maybe not nasty in the sense of inappropriate like content but just it's nasty in the sense that it's like a bait and switch mm-hmm. and and it's just gross and so why not clean this up and and you know what finally you know, I hope this is actually some kind of ongoing thing, but I think, again, this is important to look at the context that surrounded the timing of this. Um, when this came out um, about a month ago, this was right around the time when there was a lot of, like, Twitter storms coming up about scam apps in the App Store. And a lot of people were shining a lot of light on just how prevalent scam apps have become, especially in regards to using usually weekly subscription billing to seemingly trick people into paying absurd prices like, you know, $10 a week for an app that has like, you know, one screen and does a really simple thing, you know, stuff like that, where you, you end up like, if you do the math, it's like, wow, this is like $400 a year for this really simple app that does one very basic thing, if it even does that at all. Um, and so, and it has seemed for so long that no one's no one's job at Apple seems to be to monitor the top grossing apps or the app or the top apps on the top charts for scammy apps. And and maybe this is someone's job, but it doesn't look that like, like from the outside, you see apps climb those charts all the time that are like obvious scams. And they stay there until someone says something usually. And so anyway, so what was happening last month was there were a bunch of people on Twitter who were like really shining lights in this and calling attention to, in particular, like you know sp- specific scam apps that had been there for a long time, and then you know when they made a stink on Twitter, uh, you know a day later or a few hours later they'd be taken down. And these again, these are apps that, that had been there for months or weeks beforehand. So it does seem like, as usual, Apple has not seemingly been running the app store with the kind of resources it actually needs to be good or not prioritizing or not caring about those things enough but then also we know how apple works when a light is shown on something that is unpleasant (laughs) to them or makes them look bad they do fix it like running to the press always helps right like they always respond to negative press oftentimes that is the kick in the butt they need to do something that they should have done a while ago or that is obvious but that they just didn't care enough before to prioritize it or to give it resources to 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 get done and so it does seem like in the context of when this was raised you know that was during a a storm of bad press about app store scams in particular around scammy pricing and scammy subscription price apps and so in that context i think this could have just been them reacting to that in a quick you know band-aid kind of way i hope that's not it i hope they're actually devoting significant resources to making the app store seem less like a crappy scam filled flea market because it has needed that for almost its entire life. If not its entire life, like the app store, you know, Casey's right. Like it should, the amount of curation that Apple says they're doing, which again, go back to antitrust pressure. Apple is trying to project the image to regulators and governments that, 
they are protecting users from scams and stuff like that. And that's why they need to maintain their incredibly rigid hold on the gatekeeper status they have over the App Store and you know ripping off 30% off of all of our money while they're at it, right? Apple needs to defend this image because they make a lot of money from this image, from, from, the, from the gatekeeper role that they have, that this image is their defense to current and future government probes about whether they should be allowed to keep this control. So if the App Store is obviously filled with scam apps and anybody who looks at it can instantly find scam apps in the app store that weakens apple's argument to these regulators that that you know that are putting increasing pressure on them again that weakens their argument that they need to be in control of this you know to protect us i guess (laughs) right so again looking at it in context this this is not something apple's doing out of the goodness of their heart this is something that they're doing because they got bad press about it and because their app store monopoly is likely to be continuing to be threatened by regulation. Um, and so they need to make sure their argument is actually, you know, visibly apparent that like, yes, they actually are keeping this a safe place. And this walled garden, it, you know, it has seemingly been about as safe as like Central Park in the 80s. Like it's not, <laughs> it's not, it's not a great walled garden <laughs> like for, for like, you know, scamming people out of their money. Um, because, and, and honestly, most of app store pricing pre in-app purchase and and specifically pre subscription options was fairly straightforward we didn't have a lot of pricing scams besides just like paid up front apps or in-app purchases that then like wouldn't work the way they wanted but that's a lot easier for app store for app review to catch what what the, the the biggest root of this problem seems to be specifically subscription billing apps and specifically apps that try to mislead people into starting subscriptions with either free trials or just weekly prices or both because those those both kind of like bury and and obfuscate the true cost of something to people and this is something that apple can totally fix you know i I think there are two very obvious things they could do here that for some reason they haven't number one i said this on twitter i'll say it again i think they should eliminate weekly billing as an option because while there are some legitimate uses for that like people say newspapers are a common one um and I, i'm pretty sure that's why it's there i think it's there basically for the new york times um if they even still use it on purchase i don't i don't know off the top of my head but most things people pay for on an ongoing basis are not paid weekly most things that you pay for on an ongoing basis are paid monthly And most legitimate subscription apps don't charge you weekly. They charge you either monthly or annually. Weekly seems to only be used by a handful of important publications and every single price scammer on the App Store. (laughs) And so I have to imagine that pro to con ratio on weekly billing is really poor. Uh, It's really not good. And if they got rid of weekly billing, that would prevent so many scam apps from scamming so many people out of so much money uh, because it would make the pricing terms much more clear to people and then secondly as many people on twitter have have pointed out the design of the in-app purchase confirmation screen is not great everything's just like small and illegible and it doesn't call attention to the price very well and it spends a lot of like screen real estate on you know emptiness or on you know bs text and and it also shoves into the app the responsibility of a lot of disclosure of things like what are you buying most of that is most of that is left up to the app 
and is enforced by app review. And of course, that means it's selectively and inconsistently enforced. Much of that should be moved into the design of the purchase screen. That could significantly cut down on the problems that in-app purchase scams create and and what they can do, how many people get fooled, etc. Um, and why Apple hasn't modernized the in-app purchase screen for subscriptions, I don't know. I, I, I can only leave it up to a combination of you know, the, the Allen Dye software design era of not caring about legibility and clarity for people and instead caring about minimalism um, and combined with the seeming like moving mountains effort that it takes to change anything about the store and the purchase like store kit and like, like the that whole area of the OS and the services ecosystem seems like it moves glacially for whatever reason. So, you know, combine those things and I'm not expecting big changes here anytime soon. But again, I just, I wish they would put more resources into really making the app store better for customers in ways that like this, that really matter instead of just, you know, giving lip service. And, and I don't know why things have been as bad as they are in this area for as long as they have been, but I hope they find reasons to fix it besides just doing the minimum required to fend off antitrust uh, problems. The regulatory angle on this is interesting because I think Apple is relying on, and I think they're smart to rely on because I think they're they're correct, relying on the fact that the technical nuances that I think most people who would listen to this show or are up on tech news understand are never going to get a fair hearing in a sort of public forum or any kind of like congressional, you know, congressional hearing, anything like that, which is when the, when Apple makes a claim that, you know, that you were just saying, Margaret, like, oh, we, we make the App Store safe. That's why we need control. It's about safety. We're protecting customers, so on and so forth. The truth is that most of the safety comes from the design of the OS and sandboxing and has nothing to do with app review or the, or the control over the App Store. But that is a technical nuance that I think most people involved in this at the highest levels don't understand and even if they did understand it trying to articulate that technical nuance is going to make you look like just a you know a wonk who's just like getting into the weeds and it's like you're missing the big picture here it's apple control it's like but this is this technical distinction actually is important because it is the main thing that undercuts or one of the two main things that undercuts apple's argument that their control of the app store is essential for customer safety is that most of the safety has nothing to do with the app store it you know we Apple's going to say, you know, we have fewer viruses, it's safer, blah, blah, blah. That's all true, but it's not because of the App Store. It's because of, the, since day one, apps have been sandboxed and have very limited access to resources on, on the, the iPhone and everything. Now, granted, obviously, you know, if, if things didn't go through the App Store, it would be easier to exploit things because people can't silo. Like, like, there, there is, that's why this is nuanced. Do I get off into these weeds of saying, okay, well, but... Uh, Apple doesn't allow private APIs and private APIs might be more exploitable or you can't distribute a jailbreak through the Apple store and and it's harder for people to jailbreak and if sideloading was available, it would be easy to jailbreak. And, you know, like all of that is true, but still it is a nuanced distinction. Uh, and what it's undercutting is the idea that the App Store is the one and only most important bulwark against chaos on the iPhone and it is not. It is part of a solution, but I don't think even think it's the biggest part. The second big argument uh, against, oh, uh, we're keeping customers safe, uh, is alluded to in an ironic way by the first sentence of this little message. About this. this is a message that you get if you have an app that, like Apple, decides is priced too high. Uh, that Casey wrote earlier, customers expect the App Store to be a safe and trusted marketplace for purchasing digital goods. Do they? 
Why would they? Anything you do on the App Store as a regular person, like say go, you hear about a cool app and you want to go download it, so you go to the App Store to find it, you will be flooded with thousands of scam, clone apps that are not the app you want, that have hundreds of five-star reviews that are in the top of the search results and maybe are the top one because they paid for ad keywords. It is not a safe and trusted marketplace at all. Anybody who has been in the App Store in the, in the last several years has known that it's just very, unless you know exactly what you want and are very careful to go exactly to that one, not to pick the, the, the scam clone apps with identical looking icons and similar names, it is a terrifying place to be. Not because the apps are going to like root your phone and steal all your pictures or whatever, because, you know, again, sandboxing prevents that, but because you're going to end up getting the wrong thing. And that wrong thing may end up costing you money and making you accidentally sign up for a $4.99 per week bill that it starts off as a free, free trial, right? And, and you're going to, you know, well, I can just look at the reviews and it's a curated collection. It's like, no, it's not curated. Apple lets any junk through and the reviews are meaningless because they can be <laughs> scammed and Apple hasn't stopped that. Right. And the search results are terrible. So even if it's the most popular app in the world and you search for it by name, you might get some five other results before the one you want. <laughs> that that combined. So the, the nuanced arg- technical argument about sandboxing versus the App Store and the, you know, the the uh, caveats about sideloading combined with Apple's terrible job Act the actual job of curation of keeping scam apps out of the app store totally undercuts their safety argument. But let's let's set that aside for now because <laughs> that's, the, that's a like, huge thing to set aside. Right, but, but you're but, right. But, but, Other right, than that, so, did you enjoy the play, Mister Lincoln? <laughs> right. But this this particular story is about one new thing that they're doing that Apple is doing to try to reduce the scams. Right. And 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 this new thing, I'm going to come at this from the entire entirely the opposite direction. Although it, it'll it'll come around, you'll see. Um, <laughs> it reminds me of oh my. my very first thought, and I've brought this up on past shows. My very first thought when the App Store was announced, it flashed in my head when they were talking about it on screen in the presentation. Here comes the App Store, right? And here's what you can do, because you know. I was virtually surrounded. I wasn't there in person, but I was, I was virtually surrounded by all of my other uh, Apple nerd friends watching the same keynote remotely or in person, and we're all taking it in. I, I think it was a live stream. Who knows? I can't remember. It was too long ago. Um, and they put those slides up that the App Store is coming. And what I thought was, here are all these people that I know, my friends, who are you know, what we called indie software developers back then, who make a living by selling software for Apple platforms and they sort of do it on their own, maybe with a, you know, a couple of people in a small company or maybe literally by themselves. And they've been doing it for years and they are sort of, you know, these indie software developers living the dream. They found a way to, you know, make something that people are willing to pay money for and that's how they make their living. And you know, even though we all had stars in our eyes about uh, what promised to be and really was a gold rush for, you know, being able to make lots of money on the on the app store, on the iPhone, to make apps for the iPhone, I saw all of those people suddenly changing from indie software developers who exchanged their, you know, made something with their labor and sold it and got money. Uh, those people would be getting money from all of their customers. Their customers would... You know, back in the day, you'd write checks for shareware, like actual, you'd actually put a check in the mail uh, <laughs> or getting credit cards, you know, on- online and, you know, charging people's credit cards and, you know, getting their money and then giving them a code for the software or allowing them to download it or whatever. All those people were suddenly going to change from that form of income to a new form of income. And that new form of income was every month you will get a single check signed by Apple. It doesn't mean they suddenly work for Apple. 
But I was like, well, this really changes the relationship of all these supposed indie developers. Previously, they were getting money from their customers for things that they made. And that, you know, if they go all in on iOS, that's going to end. And they're no longer getting money from customers. In fact, they no longer have customers. What they're getting is money from Apple. And they're not Apple employees. It's kind of like they're sharecroppers <laughs> for Apple, right? Oh my. Like when, you're, when all of your income, income is checks signed by Apple, the relationship that you thought you had as a quote-unquote independent software developer really changes. That was my first, and I'm, I wasn't, I'm not, and wasn't then, an independent software developer, but that was my thought of like, oh, geez, this is, this is really a bigger change than we think it is. Not to say that people shouldn't develop for the App Store, because they totally should, and it really was a gold rush, and it was a good time to get in there and get some good apps out, and, you know, it's like, and not that it was, it wasn't, but it was just a, a thought in my head that this, this fundamentally changes the relationship. And this, this uh, alteration of the relationship between independent software developers and the platform they develop on has always been there. And every once in a while, something like this will come along and give me that same feeling. When this came along, where Apple's deciding, you know, like Apple's always had control over the App Store. Like they, <laughs> they, they decide what's in, they decide what's out, they make up the rules, they change their mind. Like that's always been the way it is. And occasionally they make a decision that's bad and people complain. And sometimes they make a decision that's good and people cheer, right? But the relationship, the power dynamic has always been the same. Here Apple is deciding, like calling attention to the fact that they really do control everything. Now, you could argue that decisions like, oh, the minimum price you can charge is 99 cents. That is a pricing decision that Apple's had basically since day one. You could have free or you can have 99 cents. You can't have 98, you can't have 50, you can't have one cent. You can have 99, right? And I think Apple did some stuff with like the I Am Rich application, at least strongly discouraging it from being like $1,000 or whatever. Like not that there's a cap because I think some apps can be very expensive because they're very fancy apps. But in general, Apple has set pricing parameters. But most independent software developers developing for Apple platforms through Apple's app stores have not felt like Apple is telling them how to run their business. I mean, other than telling them what apps they're allowed to develop and the fact that their minimum price has to be 99 cents and here's what you can do with subscriptions. But in general... I would think if you ask developers, they would say, well, I decide I decide how much to charge for my application, right? Like if I think I can get away with charging $99 for my app, I'm going to try to do it. And if I'm a dummy and really no one's going to buy it, then I'll change my price, right? And there's lots of arguments for the downward price pressure of the app store and free apps being hard and, you know, all, all that stuff. But in general, it always seemed like, okay, Apple sets the rules, but then we all, we as independent software developers or whoever, and just companies or whatever, we get to play in that space and decide how to price our products based on our notion of what we think is the right move in the current competitive environment. And a move like this is Apple saying, you know what? Sometimes we can just tell you, you know that price you pick for your product? Yeah, no. <laughs> it's not, not because it's below 99 cents. We just think, we think your app isn't good enough for the price that you are charging. Like they come right out and say it, right? The price you've selected for your app do not reflect the value or features of the content offered to the user. That is an incredible statement, incredible flex of power. It's like, just so you know, I don't just know you haven't thought about this lately, but we can do anything in the app store. <laughs> and we've decided that your app isn't worth the price you're charging it. Now, the context here is, okay, well, these are scam apps. Everyone can tell they're scams. And I just got done complaining that the thing is full of scams. Shouldn't we get rid of the scams? Yes, absolutely. We should get rid of the scams. 
But the power they're exercising and the judgment they are displaying is terrifying, should be terrifying to everybody because it's basically saying, okay, we've always known we had this power. Now we're telling you that we're willing to flex it, right? And I feel like once they've opened this door to like set this precedent that like previously we had this power and didn't use it, now we have this power and we're using it. We know that the App Store rules and guidelines are, are applied very poorly and inconsistently. I can imagine some, if they're not careful, at some point in the future, someone doing an update to their app and changing the price from $5.99 to $10.99 for their in-app purchase, and Apple saying, we've decided that the value of your app does not, you know, the price of your app does not reflect the value of the features of your content that you offer. Having to explain, how do you appeal that and say, well, I think it is worth $10 a month. Well, Apple thinks it isn't. <laughs> well, what, you know, and Apple is in charge of everything. <laughs> It is really, really scary, and and sometimes things like this, scary things like this, are important because they remind people that this has always been the power dynamic. You might not have been aware of it before, and might not have thought about it, and because you felt that like it might not impact you. And even this, you can say, "Well, I'm not a scam app, so this isn't going to affect me." But see, also everyone else who has ever thought that about some enforcement in, in the app store, and then suddenly found themselves on the receiving end of it, right? You know, I don't think this particular decision, I, you know, to be clear, this, they should do this. In fact, they should do this even more aggressively. They should do all the things that Marco said. They should get rid of scam apps for sure, right? But as Apple becomes better at doing the thing they supposedly say they're doing, which is curating the app score to protect customers, they're getting farther and farther from one of the things that has been protecting the app store, which is that it's more or less a free-for-all within the constraints Apple offered. So even though they're the only place where you can get apps, you can get pretty much anything, any old piece of junk. <laughs> like, you know, no one's being kept out of the app store for being a bad app developer. Everyone can get in there. It's great. It's like a quote-unquote level playing field, whatever, right? And that allows a large diversity of apps within the rules. If Apple actually started curating and saying, we prefer to only really have good apps within the rules, as in no scams, and then eventually that's like, okay, well, no apps that are really crappy or whatever, the number and type of apps available to you gets narrower and narrower, which is good in, to, in that that's what we want as customers. I don't want the scam apps. I don't want the crappy apps. But on a, at a platform perspective, the relief valve of allowing all that junk into the app store allowed the app store to look more like a free market than it has ever actually been. So if Apple ever does get good at curating the app store, it's going to be so much more obvious to regulators that it is not a free market or a level playing field or, you know, like it is entirely like the only way to get apps onto this thing is this very increasingly narrow corridor. And it's great for customers as long as those customers agree with Apple entirely about everything that should be there. Right. So I think Apple is not painting itself into a corner, but every time it does something like this as a, you know, a reaction to regulatory pressure, it further highlights the thing that they're going to end up getting regulated about, which is that they do have all the power and every exercise of that power power that narrows the app store makes it more and more clear that they do have that power power and that it is a very narrowly defined thing that does not allow all the possible innovations that could be out there in the world from being available. You know, so and I'm not using this to argue that Apple should immediately allow sideloading and allow extra app stores and allow Epic to have its own app store and all that stuff. All I'm saying is that they are in a little bit of a pickle because if they do a good job of this, you know, if maybe this is the maybe this is the middle road they're going for. If we make moves in the direction of being more open, but do a half-assed job of it, the app store will still look like an open marketplace. But we can cite these examples as things we're doing to protect customers. 
I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I found this this whole thing as another reminder to me of exactly how little the power dynamic has ever changed in the App Store. And it's mostly, I think we did we name an episode after this a while back, mostly just all of us relying on the benevolence of the powerful and trying to feel good about it. Uh, Nick writes, Apple Silicon is rightly getting a ton of praise, but how much of it of that work is due to what ARM is doing and how much of it is because of Apple? Is it ARM with Apple sprinkles or Apple with ARM sprinkles? If the latter, why wouldn't Apple just make its own chip architecture from scratch and fully control everything? You know, this is a... Um, that's a really good question. I don't know the answer, but if I were to wager a guess, I'm very curious to hear what you guys have to say. I think that it's really kind of both, isn't it? Like, I, I suppose Apple could come up with its own chip architecture and put itself behind by several years because it, it would have to throw away the, the work it's already got. But, I mean, plenty of other ARM chips exist in the world that aren't near as fast as this. So... I, if I had to pick, I would probably say Apple, but I'm biased. Uh, but I really think you can't have one without the other. I don't know, Marco, am I, am I bananas or does that make sense? I'm not a chip designer and I really don't know to what degree, like how much the ARM architecture and instruction set is being used here and, and how, like, how much Apple is, is going their own way once you get below the instruction set level. There's all sorts of decisions you can make when you're designing a chip that if you know what software is going to be running on it, and if you can control things like the compiler that you know is making most or all of that software, you can make your software and hardware work very, very well together. You can really optimize them for each other. And that's what Apple's doing here. And I don't know to what degree they do it, like on what level of the chip design, but it seems like they're doing a lot of it, and it seems like they are able to, you know, take a lot of the advantages of the ARM, you know, instruction set and basics of of the architecture, and then optimize the crap out of the stuff that goes below that, and and the compiler that compiles the software for it. So, I'm thinking, you know, just based on my you know, relative amateur level of of, uh, of knowledge of this kind of stuff, I bet a lot of the goodness of how great Apple Silicon is is on Apple. Because you can look around the rest of the industry, and lots of people use ARM chips. And ARM chips are good overall. Like they, There's a reason why lots of people use ARM chips. They, they can be tweaked to lots of different you know, workloads. Uh, they are very good at certain things. They're very efficient in lots of ways, which, which almost the entire industry needs, needs efficient chips. So there's a reason why ARM chips are used everywhere. The ARM you know, architecture and everything is very good. And using... The ARM instruction set also comes with a lot of advantages in that there's already tons of existing tooling and software around it. So, you know, it makes sense why lots of people use and, and create and customize ARM chips. Another reason people use it is that it can be customized easily and, and it can be optimized for certain applications easily. And I think that's largely what we're seeing with Apple is like every other smartphone that we know of runs ARM chips, but they don't outperform the iPhone, not even close like Apple has maintained this huge lead and that's in part because you know advances in iOS and you know power efficiency and stuff like that over Android or whatever else but it's largely because Apple has done a, a a better job optimizing the hardware for their software ecosystem and vice versa than the other players uh, in smartphones have done so far so I, I think again it's 
it's probably some of A, some of B. Like I think Apple Silicon is largely good because of ARM, because ARM was a really good foundation to build upon. But that probably most of the reason why it's so good is that Apple has just customized the crap out of it to be optimized very, very well for their workflow and their software needs and their hardware needs. I think I lost track in this analogy. Like, are the sprinkles, like, what are we, are the sprinkles the thing that don't matter or are the sprinkles the things that do matter? <laughs> like, it, like, which is the, are sprinkles good or just the frill? Anyway, uh, yeah, I, I agree with what you both said. Like, it's it's 100%, not 100%, but like, the answer is whether it's, which one of these is more important? The fact that it's ARM or the fact that it's Apple? The fact that it's Apple is absolutely the more important factor. Um, and it's like people said, like, just look at the other ARM chips for doing the exact same job, being in a smartphone. Apple's chips crush them and have for years, not by a little bit, not by 10%, by huge, embarrassing amounts. Um, and yes, Apple can and does custom tailor every aspect of the entire stack to to fit together and work well. But that type of optimization alone does not account for the massive lead that they have. Apple has some of the best chip designers in the world. They were blessed to be able to start with an architecture that was well suited to their application. It's kind of an accident of history of like, well, we need a chip for the phone. It should be a low power chip. ARM seems to be the leader in this area. They didn't start with a weird architecture that wasn't suited for a phone. So it was a blessing there. But Apple only started to pull away once they started to make their own ARM chips. When they were using other people's ARM chips, they had performance like other people's ARM chips. And it seemed like it was fine. But then they just stretched that lead out when they started doing their own thing, whether it's being first to 64 bit or just having the amazing chips they have now. Apple's chip designers are amazing. It's a really easy A-B comparison. Look at the other people also making ARM chips. And the thing is, if you think of like Intel or other things, Apple's platform, especially now that it's in Macs, is pretty broad. They make tablets, they make phones, they make Macs, all with their same architecture. Back when it was the Wintel duopoly, it was a similar situation where the big platform that mattered before smartphones and everything was personal computers. And Windows was the the massively dominant software platform, and Intel or x86-based chips were the hardware platform. At any point during that very long stretch of time when Wintel was the thing, there could have been, and I'm sure there was, the same type of work, granted, across companies, but like Intel could design chips knowing, hey, most people who buy this chip are going to run Windows on it. And Windows people run these applications like Microsoft Office or Photoshop or whatever. Like there were known workloads that Intel absolutely could and probably did design its chip to be high performing at. Or like games, like GPU. GPU vendors do this today. GPU vendors make sure that their silicon and their drivers, they have custom tweaks in the drivers for specific games to perform better. It detects when you're running a specific game to change how it behaves to get better scores on those benchmarks for those features, right? This is not an unknown, you know, type of thing, tweaking your hardware to the software. It's just that, A, it's easier for Apple to do it because they're all one company, and B, Apple seems to be better at it. <laughs> like, they're just, they, like, just like the, the silicon design. Why aren't everyone else's ARM chips as good as Apple's? All those other smartphone vendors and other people making ARM system-on-a chips could also tailor those system-on-a chips to work well with Android, which they know is going to be the operating system that runs on the things. And they know what people are going to be running on them. So, like, it's not like Apple has an, can do something here that no one else can do, that only Apple can do this. Everybody can and has done this. Apple is just doing it better. Uh, and, you know, again, because they're a single company, uh, but because they have a lot of smart people. And, you know, sometimes you just get the right, <laughs> the right set of people around in the right place at the right time. And, you know, that's the result. So... 
if the sprinkles is the good thing, the sprinkles is apple. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Glad we got that sorted. Uh, Matt Chapman Jones writes, what do you think Apple would need to do to actually make gaming on Macs on par with gaming on PCs? Hypothetically, let's say a new Apple Silicon G1 is announced with similar power to an NVIDIA 3080 or that Apple starts offering an AMD RX 6800 XT in Mac Pros. What more would they need to do to actually get developers on board in a real way to make the Mac a, platf- the Mac a platform that AAA titles come, on- come to on the day of release? I don't know. Do they need DirectX, John? What what do they need to do? I mean, Marco, was it Marco who mentioned the Switch earlier? Um, Mm -hmm. The Switch is is ample evidence that uh, even if your hardware is not good, like not not competitive, not powerful or whatever, that doesn't mean you can't be a player in the gaming space. Apple's problem with respect to games, some of it, yes, has been hardware, but their big problem is APIs. Uh, and the software development ecosystem. Games are not made for Apple's APIs. They're made for APIs on other platforms. They're made for DirectX, they're made for the consoles or whatever. And if your platform knows how to, you know, cultivate, uh, you know, gaming content and get developers to make games for it, you can field really ridiculous hardware like the PS3 with the cell. And still people will develop for it because you're Sony and your product is the PlayStation and you know how to deal with developers. So Apple's problems here have nothing to do with like, oh, Apple can't make good enough hardware or their GPUs aren't powerful enough or what if they made an amazing chip or an amazing GPU? Like they can do all those things and, you know, it would help them maybe run some games that are all available now a little bit better, but they would never be a player in the game market unless they essentially did what everyone who has ever entered and succeeded in this market has done, which is play the game, woo the developers, form the relationships, build the platform, get the players. Like, you have to do all of those things that have nothing to do with making a great chip. Apple already makes great chips. Like, the the, the chips in all of their iPads are more powerful than stuff in the Switch, but no one is, like you know, clamoring to play the, the latest iPad game uh, any more than they're playing, they want to play the latest Zelda. What does Zelda have that these games don't? Like, Apple has tons of powerful hardware. They don't have the games, and they don't have the games because they don't have the developers, and they don't have the developers because they don't know how to build those relationships because it's not like it's not like software developers, uh, and it's not like the app development platform. Games is much more like, uh, you know, they're experiencing with streaming services, a creative industry. It's like making movies and TV shows. You don't know when you're going to have a hit. It's not a straightforward formula to get one. See the recent stories about uh, Amazon um, and Google trying their various gaming initiatives. Both of them are trying to sort of have in-house gaming studios, but they have no idea how to make a good game. It's like it's like saying, I want to make a hit movie. Can I do that? I know. And it's like, well, maybe, but it's actually really hard. And I can't tell you exactly what to do. Otherwise, everyone would make hit movies, right? It's it's a different skill set. And even if you hire all the right people, if the culture of your company is wrong, where you don't you don't create an environment where a hit game can come into being because your company is structured to make, let's say, really great operating systems or great apps or something like that, games are different enough that it is a big effort to succeed in this market totally independent of hardware. I always point to Microsoft because Microsoft, you know, Microsoft has a long history of gaming on the PC. They decided they wanted to enter the console market. They were already the biggest PC gaming platform because they were PCs at that point. And even they had difficulty merely doing a slightly different gaming thing, which is we're going to make a gaming console. They were already 
the the platform for PC gaming, and even they took years and lost tons of money and had to really stick to it to figure out how to make a viable console gaming platform. And even then, they didn't come to dominate. They are just now one of three remaining big players in the market, and the, you know the, the lead shuffles around as time goes on, right? So it's really hard, and the hard parts have nothing to do with hardware. So what does Apple have to do? They basically have to do what Sony and Microsoft and Nintendo have done to become the gang power as they are now. And the answer to that question is not field a really great chip. Ram Srinath writes, do you use any battery backups with your desktops? Do you plug your NAS into it too? Do you know if I can use the USB almost running out of power dingus on the EPS to turn my Mac off? This Apple support page says that my iMac consumes 295 watts at peak power. Do you know how that translates to how big a UPS I should get in VA? What does in VA mean? Oh, in Volt amps. Yeah, there you go. Sorry, I'm so used to seeing Virginia for that, and I was very confused. Um, uh, for me, I have a very old uh, UPS, uh, and I have the USB dingus attached to my Synology because, honestly, I'm more worried about that knowing when power is about to run out than I am my iMac. But plugged into the UPS is the Synology, my iMac, and uh, I think my, my Eero, and very little else, if anything, uh, and it's it's last it lasts long enough, even though it's several years old now. It lasts long enough to keep the lights on, so to speak, for the typical power blip that we would get around here. Um, I would guess I would measure how long this lasts in ten or twenty minutes, but that's enough for me, and and that's how I do it. Marco, what do you do? Um, what I do is is possibly different from what I recommend. Um, but so oh, what enough. I what I do is. I have a UPS everywhere I have a desktop, and I have a UPS um, at my networking gear station in the, cl- in the closet. Um, so that way, it you know it keeps the the router and the switches and everything all all running. Um, and, of, and of course, the you know the, the Verizon ONT thing is also put into that. So that way, like you know, basically power goes out. We still have internet as long as the internet service is up. Um, and that's that is that kind of setup is great for. If you have the space, and if you're willing to spend, you know, 150 bucks here and there on UPSs, and if what you have to plug in is SS. Now, obviously, laptops, I, I don't think you need one, uh, because the laptop itself kind of kind of includes one built in. Uh, so, it, it, you know, that's not really necessary. But certainly the quality of life improvement, if you frequently have power blips of having your internet connectivity never drop, is wonderful. Uh, that being said... What UPS is right for you depends entirely on your situation, and it can vary a lot. Uh, if you are somewhere that almost never has any kind of power blackout, and if your desktop suddenly turning off in the middle of a big windstorm is something you can tolerate, then you probably don't need a UPS at all. Uh, if you do have a UPS, it, I think it makes desktop life a little bit easier. Um, if you get a really nice and massive one it also makes a very good footrest because they don't move when you when you like push back and lean on them because they're so heavy because uh, the big ones are basically car batteries with a f- very small amount of metal around them so <laughs> that that could be a fun thing but for the most part um i just i i spent a long time with CyberPower ups's uh and before that apcs i generally prefer the cyber powers now i find they give you much better bang for your buck than apc does um, APC seems for a while like it has been coasting on its reputation, uh, in my opinion. Um, so CyberPower is where it's at. Um, they there are multiple different kinds of UPSs. Uh, I, I like the kind that have the the like pure sine wave output 
not necessarily because I need a perfectly smooth wave, but because that typically means it has really good voltage regulation and stuff, and, and that, that kind of gets you into the, like, the high tier of UPSs, and please, power nerds, forgive me, because I don't know the actual details of how this stuff works, again, <laughs> but um, basically at the at the very low end of UPSs, they're not always running the power through their, like, power regulator circuitry. They're running the power straight through most of the time, and if they need to, they, like, switch over. And my understanding is the kind of higher-end version of UPSs are always running the power through their circuitry. And so there is no, like, switchover change to happen. And that, I think, is better if your power is, like, a little flaky, but is not, like, just going, like, pure on or pure off. Um, so... That's usually I, I usually end up going for whatever is like the entry level version of that type of UPS. So like not like the super big fancy server versions or anything like that, but like you know the the kind of like the mid range of UPS versions. And, and CyberPower makes those in the like hundred fifty dollar range pretty easily. So that's usually where I go. I usually go around the like one thousand to fifteen hundred VA range in part because I don't entirely understand what that unit means. Um, and, and in part because usually I'm less concerned with runtime and more concerned with just how much wattage can it, can it handle at a time because I'm usually plugging into it a giant desktop with a giant screen and everything else. So, you know, having something that can handle, you know, 1,000 watts or 600 watts or something like is, is probably a minimum. And that usually, as you increase the wattage, usually you get higher VA ratings too because I assume that's kind of somehow related. Um, but... I'm sure I'm going to read some Medium article next week about how it's actually not related at all and it's actually a big scam or whatever. But anyway, <laughs> what UPSs are good for is dealing with short power interruptions like that. It's there, you know, if you if your power is going out for hours and hours at a time, this is probably better solved in a different way, like some kind of backup generator or solar power or you know something like that. Uh, but for brief interruptions, like if you just have unreliable power or you have occasional brownouts here and there, um, or you know if you if if you know like the, you're somewhere that has a lot of like you know overhead power lines and you frequently have like a half hour off or something like that then obviously get a ups the only other thing i'll add to this before i let john take over is if you have frequent power problems where the ups is frequently having to kick on and things like that it, there's a pretty good chance it will shorten the life of the battery in the ups because it's just being used a lot and there's not a great way around that except just expect that to happen. So don't spend a whole bunch of money on a really great UPS if you frequently have like little blips, little power blips here and there, because it probably won't last more than a few years. Yeah, the only things I had are for trying to size your UPS, um, the peak power draw or like the, the, the rating for your power supply in your computer is not a good way to size things so if you if you try to use those like sizing tools they have on the website or whatever they'll want they want you to enter the information like that like yo, know, my mac has a 1500 watt power supply what what is in the mac pro is like 1300 watts it's something ridiculous right it's the most you can draw from a 15 amp circuit without requiring a special outlet or plug but i think it's under that i think they're under the 1500 limit right it's not a space heater literally right well because and and you also can't you can't have like, you can't draw 15 amps sustained. Mm -hmm. If it's a sustained load, I believe you have to cap it at 80% of the amperage of the circuit. Um, so it's, I think, 13 or 1400 watts, something like that. 
Yeah, but anyway, the point is like that's that's what's in my Mac Pro, right? But my Mac Pro, my actual Mac Pro, is never drawing that much power. Like, because you can just add up the power draw of the things that are inside it, and they do not get to that. Now, if you filled my thing with like, you know, dual GPU uh, video cards and filled every single slot and filled it with like eight spinning hard disks and like, you know, yeah, that's why the power supply is in there. But my Mac doesn't have that in it, right? So don't size your load based on the maximum possible power that your computer could draw. Size it based on what your actual computer does draw, right? <laughs> and how do you get that measurement? There's lots of cheap tools you can use to like plug in and try to measure it. But like, but you can make an estimate or whatever. Like, all I'm saying is that if you use one of the sizing tools, you're gonna be like, "This is telling me I need $900 worth of UPSs." Yeah, that's what UPS websites will tell you. That you, of course, they're gonna tell you you need $900. But you, you don't, right? I have. So what I'm saying is, I always undersize my UPSs. I've undersized them on every Mac that I've ever had. I get very little battery time when the power does go out, but that's fine because all I want is enough time to you know shut down or to have the computer shut down. On that, uh, on that aspect of these things. The little UPS connection, or USB connections from UPSs to Macs, the Mac has a surprisingly, used to have a surprisingly a good amount of built-in support for UPSs. And there was a time, again, back in the good old days of my cheese grater, when I could have my UPS plugged into my Mac with zero drivers installed from the UPS maker, and the Mac understood it, and the UPS could tell it, hey, you're on battery power, you should probably shut down now, and the Mac would shut down. Like, that's what you want to happen, right? Since then... I've become super paranoid in two aspects. One, I don't like weird USB things connected to my Macs because USB on Macs has been flaky in the last, I don't know, decade or so. <laughs> and, and so, like, I hate debugging problems that have to do with USB. Um, and two, I hate having, you know, cruddy, non-updated software from a UPS manufacturer running on my Mac, uh, if it even does run on, you know, with the new, with the current driver model and everything like that. So... All that is to say is my current UPS that is hooked up to my Mac Pro is not connected through USB at all. Um, and I'm just relying on the fact that my Mac is always asleep and that when it's asleep, it can probably last a surprisingly long time on this big cyber power giant brick thing that I have here. Um, so don't worry about that. The Synology, on the other hand, is also on a UPS. My NAS, yes, my NAS is on a UPS. It's got spinning disks in it that are like spinning all the time. It's on a UPS and it is connected via USB. And that's, you know, and that will shut itself down if power goes out, right? As for batteries, yeah, you'll need to replace them. In fact, I just replaced, uh, like, four days ago, the battery in the UPS uh, that is connected to my NAS, uh, which is, I think, the first time I had actually shut down my NAS in, like, I don't know how many years. Like, it's just been on continuously. The UPS has had this incredibly obnoxious, impossible-to-disable screeching siren telling me my battery is dead. And so, yeah, <laughs> I went down. And, and the batteries cost, like... You know, especially for a NAS, like they don't draw too much power. It's like twenty or thirty bucks to get a new battery. You don't, ha- you can replace the batteries in these things. Really? This one wasn't a- yeah. You, I I haven't replaced one in a very long time. But the one time I did replace one, it was back in in like a a big APC one years ago. But it cost almost as much as a new unit. Well, this is a this is like a dinky one. Like my my Synology is connected to like one of those ones that looks like a the world's biggest power strip. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean? Like the big chunky thing, and it's what is it? It's like APC the RBC thirty two. It's like twenty three dollars from Amazon. I I bought so many yeah. of them. Right, they're actually surprisingly small batteries. Right, so you know if you, if you have a small device like a NAS with a couple of drives in it, you can get a pretty small cheap UPS. And every time the battery dies, and this and so this is the first time I've swapped the battery out. This thing has been on a UPS since twenty thirteen. So it's lasted eight years down there. Um, so, you know, you can, 
swapping batteries is viable. Just, you know, again, if you buy like a $900 UPS, yeah, the battery's going to be expensive too. Um, and the final thing I'll note about this is forget about power going out. Once you have things on UPS that are aware they're on UPS, you'll find out just how much time you have these little miniature brownouts. Now, power <laughs> supplies in, in, in modern uh, electronics are actually really good about smoothing that out. Same thing with the sine wave stuff, like the fancy power supplies that are in all of our Macs and everything. You don't have to worry too much about pure sine wave because the power supply itself will do that. But uh, And they'll also smooth out like dips in the power. But once you have a UPS in front of that that like notifies you, you'll be like, wow, I never noticed this before because I didn't even notice the lights flicker or anything. But guess what? We have just enough of a power dip like when the vacuum gets turned on at the same time as the toaster is going that I notice my UPS ticks on for a second. Hmm, that's interesting. And then if you, <laughs> you feel like, oh, I'm glad I have the UPS there because then at least the power supply on my Mac doesn't have to deal with that blip, which it's designed to do and would be fine, but it's just nice to have something else there in front of it. Um, and then, of course, the Synology always emails me every time. <laughs> it's like, I'm on battery power. Or, no, I'm back on regular power. I get like two emails in quick succession anytime anyone vacuums in the basement because my entire house is <laughs> my entire house like the whatever it is the uh, the main circuit or whatever it's not it's like barely enough to power my house uh, so any kind of elevated spike is enough to sort of perturb it what I think I have like 150 uh, amp service and I should have 200 right so. You never know how well-sized your house is, but having UPSs on the stuff that you care about is important. And they also provide surge suppression, most of them as well. So that's another thing that you should have going. In fact, most recently, the few things in my house that aren't on a UPS, uh, we had like a power blip. Uh, one of them is my uh, PlayStation. I was like, I should put that on a UPS because no, it doesn't really matter. But if I'm in the middle of a game and it was just a blip and it took out my PlayStation, but everything else didn't even notice, I feel cheated out of whatever game I was in the middle of playing. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a long answer to say, yes, you should get UPSs. Yes, your NAS should be on one. Maybe you should hook it up to USB. Uh, it's better if there's no drivers. Uh, and, you know, and don't, uh, don't be afraid to undersize them a little bit as long as you understand that all you're getting is five minutes of panic to shut everything down. <laughs> I remember... Um I was at I was standing in Jason Snell's house during uh, Dub Dub Week. I don't know, it was like five years ago, and I was getting constant messages from my Synology because Aaron, poor Aaron, back home with I think just Declan at the time, um, was going through like a truly terrible wind and rainstorm uh, to the point that I think the, 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 she was getting worried and legitimately worried about like a tornado or something like that. Um, and so I'm exchanging texts with her as I'm trying to like be social with it, with you guys amongst others at Jason's house, and my watch is vibrating incessantly. Like, oh, the UPS power is is down. Oh, it's back. Oh, it's down. Oh, it's back. Meanwhile, Aaron's like, oh man, this storm is really, really bad, and I'm just sitting there like, I wish I could do something. But uh, it was a very eerie way to hammer home that Aaron was as, and it's not her style to exaggerate, but it was that she was not exaggerating. There was a really bad storm going on because we were losing power constantly and then fast forward like a year or two later in, in a tree um that that's right outside our neighborhood that was constantly you know losing branches and knocking out our power i guess the power company got tired of it and they chopped back that tree quite a bit and and knock on wood we haven't had a power issue since so i know what you're talking about uh one more uh, uh thing uh marco touched on this like the different kinds of power supplies the ones that run all of the power through the power regulation circuit all the time versus the ones that pass it straight through until it gets cut and then they swap uh 
the ones that run the power through all the time, I think they're called continuous UPSs, I forget what the name is or whatever, you probably don't want one of those because those tend to have fans. <laughs> they oh, tend God to be forbid. loud. They tend to be made for data centers because in a data center, you don't want something that's going to notice when the power disappears and quickly swap it. You want just continuous power delivery that is never like truly uninterruptible power supply, not, oh, there's going to be an interruption, but we're really fast about switching and the capacitors will make up for it, right? Those truly uninterruptible ones are don't just have fans, but like loud fans, fans that you probably don't want in your house. Now, like my CyberPower UPS has a fan. It's the first UPS I ever bought with a fan, and I was afraid of it. But then I did enough research to say, okay, well, the fan only comes on if if and when it switches to battery power, and that pretty much never happens. So it has fans in it, but they're not on, right? So I would say for home use, get the cheaper ones that aren't whatever it is continuous power supplies don't worry about the fact that they have a fan because if you get a good one like the cyber power one the fan will only come on when it switches to battery and it starts to get a little bit warm and then you won't care about the fan because you'll be too busy panic shut down, shutting down your computer or it will be too busy shutting it down for you uh through its usb connection that hopefully isn't causing your computer to flake out yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes to the one I got um, just last year, and it's it's I'm pretty it's probably the same one. It's the CyberPower, um, and the feature that we're talking about with the continuous power draw, I think, is what they call AVR for automatic voltage regulation, presumably, um, but something like that. That's that's what I get is like whatever CyberPower you know tower shaped one is around a thousand VA and supports AVR. That's how I slice the UPS, and that's for for my desktop purposes. That's great. Yeah, I think I got whatever like the slightly bigger one because I I didn't I was so tired of undersizing my UPSs for my giant tower computers I went a little bit bigger. Um, so I think maybe I have the the step up model of like two hundred and change or whatever. But I have no regrets. It is you know I like the fact that it's a tower form factor because it actually fits in the you know it's under my my tower computer is on a little table and under the tower computer is my tower UPS so it all fits in a nice big <laughs> vertical stack. Is it on a smaller table? It should be, but it isn't. No, yeah, it's just it's just on the carpet, which is fine. Again, I was worried about it being on the carpet and having a fans and overheating. Nope, no problem. It sits there. It's dead silent. It does its job. Even when it clicks, it ticks on. Sometimes I barely notice because it's kind of a quiet ticking on. Unlike the ones that don't have sine waves, that do, you hear them like making a a ticking noise because they're sort of they're simulating a sine wave with a series of steps. Like they always scare you in the the UPS uh, advertising material. Like, look at this power signal from this non pure sine wave. Well, isn't it ugly? <laughs> it's fine. Your your power supply computer will handle that. But yes, it is ugly, and it and it manifests in a noise when you are on battery power on a cheaper UPS. But don't worry about it. If you want to put your NAS on one of those things, it's fine. That's what my NAS is on. It works fine. Ticks on, it ticks off. Your battery will still last a long time. Oh, one other thing. To, speaking of noise, if you have frequent power outages that aren't super like alerting for you like if you don't really need to know when the power's out you just have to continue your work for a few minutes almost every ups by default beeps loudly when it's running on battery to tell you hey oh my god your power's out beep 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 it's out oh my god (laughs) and on the low end ones usually you can't disable the beep uh on the higher end ones you usually can uh and this one of the reasons I selected this this line is that I can and did disable the beep on it. Uh, so if that's something that you want to be able to do, make sure the one you that that you're looking at can do that. When my battery died and the UPS connected to my Synology, it's like screeching, like just a continuous, the top of its lung screech. Not as loud as a smoke detector, but not quite either. <laughs> Neither one of my children noticed this at all. I come into the house and I'm like... <laughs> The two kids are just sitting there, like they got their headphones in, they're staring at their iPads. I'm like, do you of not course. notice the screeching noise? And I'm like, what? 
Well, I'm like, I'm the old person who's supposed to not be able to hear this. That's terrible <laughs> screeching noise. And they're like, I don't hear anything. I'm like, come with me. Let's, let's go follow the sound. Where is it coming from? Oh, it seems to be down in the basement. I mean, not that they could do anything about it, but I would expect them to, to have like texted me and said, Dad, there's a terrible screeching noise in the house. What's going on? Instead, they just ignored it and continued to do whatever they were doing. Kids these days. Thanks to our sponsors this week, Squarespace, ExpressVPN, and Flatfile. And thanks to our members who support us directly, you can join us at atp.fm slash join. We will talk to you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin. Because it was accidental. Oh, it was accidental. John didn't do any research. Marco and Casey wouldn't let him. Cause it was accidental. accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental. And you can find the show notes at atp.fm. And if you're into Twitter, you can follow them at C A S E Y L I S S. So that's Casey Liss, M A R C O A R M E N T Marco Armin S I R. AC, USA Syracuse, it's accidental. I said grave danger. You said, is there any other kind? Oh, no, no, stop. Don't say it. Don't say it. Uh, uh, is that clear and present? No. Patriot Games? No. It's some Tom Clancy one, isn't it? No, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on it. It's the Tom Cruise, uh, Jack Nicholson uh, courtroom movie. Oh, A Few Good Men, of course. Yeah, there you go. Uh, that's men. right. Uh, yeah. I said, but the unfair advantage moat. Is there any other kind of moat? It's always an unfair <laughs> moat. That's what makes it a moat. A Few Good Men holds up last I saw it. A good one. I mean, the courtroom stuff is good. As usual, I haven't seen it. You have? Oh you my God, it? Marco! <laughs> I, oh. Yeah, you should. If you if you like courtroom, you like uh, my cousin Vinny, right? Yeah, yeah. I've never I've never seen that one. What? We've been over this like five times. Yeah. You haven't Watch seen a few that? Good men. It, there, there's a oh. bunch of other random uh, surrounding stuff that's going to look dated to you, but the courtroom stuff and a few good men. If you like my cousin Vinny and you want a non comedy angle on that, try a few good men. Why would I want a non-comedy angle? Because it, you like the courtroom part of it. It's most of you know. It, trust me, it's it's good courtroom stuff. You like it. I like Joe Pesci in the courtroom. Right, but uh, I, I don't. You you like that movie, and a lot of it takes place in a courtroom, and a lot of the drama is about witnesses and trying to get out of them what really happened and stuff like that. And there you go. Every Halloween, I search to see if anybody will sell me the velour tux from my cousin. <laughs> just have that made for you you know you would think it, it's surprisingly complicated like that is a probably eventually what i'm gonna have to do but like i all i want is the my cousin Vinny tux and I, i'm shocked that like nobody like no one on etsy or anything like no one seems to sell it you know how hot that would be to wear though yeah well not i mean halloween is often freezing you know it's often pretty cold but that's that's what that's the only i've never wanted to wear a halloween costume really i've never been that into halloween that is the only costume I actually want to wear. Mm. I want that one year, and I, I can't find it anywhere. When I was a kid, I was in, like, middle school or high school, maybe. Um, I, I guess it must have been high school because I was big enough to wear or at least not look 
utterly ridiculous in clothes that my dad had. And uh, I wore, he had bought way back when a David Byrne big suit for like some party or something like that, just to goof off. Maybe it was Halloween. I don't know. And maybe it was Halloween that I wore, but for one reason or another, I wore a David Byrne big suit in high school and nobody understood it, but I thought I was cool as hell. I was not, but I, I mean, I depending on when you were in the high school, like if I had worn a, tried to wear that in the eighties, people would just think it's an 80s suit because the shoulders are pretty big by then back then. Naturally. <laughs> That's a fair point. It's That's like, you point. can't tell if you're intentionally doing a talking heads thing or you're just wearing a, you're a kid who's wearing a suit that's a little bit too big and it also happens to be the eighties. <laughs> so true. So I was thinking, I was, lo- I was just looking up the dumb and dumber suits to see if those would hold up. Oh, solid choice. The problem with the That's dumb and dumber one. suits is that you'd need both of them for it to be identifiable. So you would need a friend to do it with you because the suits themselves are not super remarkable like by themselves. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you would, de- yeah, that you would definitely, I know you'd do it with me. Oh, I absolutely would. I would not even bat an eye. <laughs> 